This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon and welcome to the uh, spring quarter Carlos Kelly McClatchy Symposium. My name is Anne Grimes. I am uh, this year's Lori Loke Visiting Professor in the Communication Department here at Stanford. Today, we are going to explore some tough issues currently facing the press. How reporters use anonymous sources, how they handle and rely on confidential sources, or what some people might call leaks, what happens when journalists are challenged by the government to identify their sources, and what kinds of First Amendment protections do reporters have. In recent months, more and more reporters are being prosecuted for shielding their sources. Just last Friday, the San Francisco Chronicle and two of its reporters, Lance Williams and Mark Fainarutwada, were subpoenaed to disclose the source of leaked grand jury documents used as the basis for articles and a book about the illicit use of banned drugs by professional athletes. The articles about the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, a nutritional supplement company known as Balco, are familiar to many of us who live here in the Bay Area. The stories generated a firestorm, created a controversy around well-known athletes like San Francisco's Giants, Starberry Bonds. They also prompted congressional hearings on the use of steroids and other drugs. Ultimately, as the Chronicle has pointed out, they prompted changes in the way Major League Baseball and other professional sport, sports leagues handled, handled drug testing. Over the weekend, Chronicle editor Phil Bronstein said that the newspaper would, quote, unconditionally stand by its reporters in fighting this effort by the government to force them to reveal their confidential sources. Friday subpoenas are the latest example of a push by federal prosecutors to force reporters to reveal their sources or be cited for contempt of court. Most of you are familiar with the New York Times reporter Judith Miller, who spent 85 days in jail last year before eventually naming Scooter Liddy, a top aide of Vice President Dick Cheney, as the source who told her about the, ident the identity of CIA operative Valerie Plame Wilson. But there are others. In November of 2004, a Rhode Island television reporter, Jim Terracani, spent four months in home confinement for refusing to tell, uh, to identify the source of a videotape that showed a city official taking a bribe. More recently, government officials have gone after the files of the late Washington-based investigative reporter, Jack Anderson. Two lobbyists for the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC have been indicted under an unusual maneuver using the 1917 federal espionage law. They received classified information from a former Pentagon official, official verbally. That's the kind of information flow that reporters, especially those who work in Washington, D.C., engage in on a daily basis. Many worry they could be next. Indeed, the Bush administration has engaged in some saber-rattling um, on that front toward reporters who won the Pulitzer Prize um, for disclosing the existence of secret CIA prisons in Eastern Europe and the White House's secret surveillance um, program. Finally, this week, 
the Supreme Court is poised to decide whether or not it will hear a case that involves two of our guests. Wen Ho Lee, a former Los Alamos lab nuclear weapons scientist, has sued the government in a civil case under the 1974 Privacy Act for what he claims was improper disclosure of his name and other information during a 1990, 1999 espionage investigation. Lee spent nine months in solitary confinement before pleading guilty to one count of mishandling classified information. He is seeking to find out who in the government released information about him to the press. His attorneys have subpoenaed two of our panelists to identify their sources. So far, they have refused. Let me introduce them. To my left, Bob Drogan has covered national security and intelligent issue, issues for the Washington Bureau of the Los Angeles Times since 1998. He previously was a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia and South Africa and a national correspondent based in New York. Bob has won or shared numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize, the Robert F. Kennedy Award, and the Overseas Press Club Award, and a George Polk Award. A native of Bayonne, New Jersey, Bob attended Oberlin College and Columbia Journalism School. He was a Knight Fellow uh, in journalism here at Stanford in 1997-1998. He currently is on leave from the LA Times writing Curveball, a book for Random House and the pre-war uh, intelligence in Iraq. He has been in contempt of a federal court since 2004, as I said, for declining to identify his sources in the Wenhold Lee case. The Washington Post's Walter Pincus is dean of the DC National Security Press Corps. He has covered national security and intelligent issue, intelligence issues, including nuclear weapons, for 25 years. He too has won many awards, including a Page One Award, a Polk Award, an Emmy, and shared in the Pulitzer Prize. A graduate of Yale, Walter also graduated in 2001 from my alma mater's law school, Georgetown. Um, where he received his law degree. Like Bob, he has been subpoenaed in the Wen Ho Lee case. He has also been subpoenaed in the Valerie Plame Wilson CIA Lee case. Joining us, we also have Kathleen Sullivan, the Stanley Morrison Professor of Law and former Dean of Stanford Law School. Kathleen, as many of you know, is an expert in constitutional law and First Amendment issues. She is a graduate of Cornell. She was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. She holds her law degree from Harvard, and she has previously taught at USC and Harvard, and she has been on the faculty here at Stanford since 1993. Welcome, everybody. So. We have a lot to talk about. Um, and I thought we could start by framing our conversation um, this way and exploring three themes. Um, first is uh, where we are in this whole mess, if it is a mess. Um, secondly, how we got here and what, what impact all these subpoenas are having on the press, both positively and negatively. And thirdly, what solutions are out there to resolve um, the tensions um, between the need to protect government sources or grand jury testimony and um, the press's ability to protect its confidential sources. Are there other avenues for resolution? Um, or are we going to see more reporters, including our panelists, possibly go to jail? 
So um, maybe we should start with a history lesson. Um, Kathleen, um, the last time the Supreme Court visited the question of privilege or protecting reporters from having to disclose confidential sources was in 1972 uh, in a court case called Brandsburg versus Hayes. Uh, when it found that the Constitution offers no special protection to reporters who are called to testify. Um, since then, there's been a lot of confusion about just how much protection journalists have. Um, courts argue that federal prosecutors have the power to force reporters to disclose confidential sources, but largely haven't done so, and, and now that appears to be um, changing. So what gives? Well, Anne, the quick answer to the question, what protection does the First Amendment give the press against revealing confidential sources is no more than it gives anybody else. That is, the court held in 1972, 34 years ago, that the First Amendment confers no special privilege on reporters to keep their uh, uh, sources confidential, at least not against a grand jury subpoena. And the case that Anne refers to in 1972 was a consolidated set of three cases that involved reporters who had information that federal prosecutors wanted. They had been to Black Panther meetings that federal prosecutors were worried were about uh, planning or even committing crimes. They'd been to certain other uh, behind-the-scenes underground activities, and the federal prosecutors wanted information about the possible commission of crimes and evidence of crimes. And the reporter said, we don't have to disclose our sources. The First Amendment protects us. And the Supreme Court rejected that claim by a vote of five to four. Now, what uh, the Supreme Court said in a majority opinion by Justice White was grand jurors are entitled to every man's evidence. And a journalist is no different from every other witness subpoenaed before the grand jury. Now, if you think about that, it makes a certain amount of sense. The First Amendment protects us against censorship. But it doesn't say that the freedom of the press immunizes the press from general laws. So if you think about does, uh, uh, does um, uh, Katie Couric get a special freedom from a speeding law if she speeds to the evening newscast or even to the morning newscast? But if she's speeding, is there any violation of the First Amendment in arresting her for speeding? Well, no. There's no First Amendment privilege to speed. There's no First Amendment privilege to steal. There's no First Amendment privilege to be immune from labor laws. If the Washington Post or the LA Times has a dispute with their printers union or their machinists, they're subject to the labor laws just as if they were the widget company. If there's an antitrust violation, that can apply to the press as well as to anybody else. In other words, general laws against theft, speeding, uh, copyright infringement generally apply to the press as they do to anybody else. And what Brandsburg said in the majority opinion was grand jury subpoenas same deal. You get a grand jury subpoena, you're the press, no special privilege because you're a reporter. Now, uh, let, what created the confusion, Anne, that you refer to, and you're quite right, there's been a lot of confusion, is that there was a fifth vote that was needed to produce that result, and it came from Justice Powell, Lewis Powell, the Virginian who was so often the swing vote on the late Berger and early uh, Rehnquist court. He was a moderate on issues, and he often provided that fifth vote for controversial issues. And in his opinion, he agreed with the majority that there's no special First Amendment privilege, but he suggested that the district courts ought to read the First Amendment into the balancing test they apply when they look at grand jury subpoenas. They ought to say, does the government really need this? Did they look for it themselves? Could they get it from some other place? 
And is this information really relevant? Do we know that uh, it's really relevant to a grand jury? Now, normally prosecutors can look for whatever they want. They don't have to show that it's relevant. But Justice Powell suggested that there should be a kind of First Amendment thumb on the scale in the ordinary use of balancing to decide the equities of a grand jury subpoena. So that fifth opinion led a lot of lower courts, that fifth opinion and that special concurrence by Powell, led a lot of lower courts to do something they don't usually do, which is just ignore the Supreme Court majority opinion and say, well, there must be some kind of implied First Amendment privilege here. And so a lot of lower courts have insisted on more of a showing from the government for a grand jury subpoena of a reporter than they would have required from every man or you or me. Now, Anne, if I could just take one quick Please. minute. The, let's look at what the arguments for the First Amendment privilege were, the ones that were rejected by the majority in Brandsburg, but relied on by the lower courts who want to read Brandsburg kind of hopefully the way Powell wrote his concurrence. The argument is we have lots of privileges in our society. We have a spousal privilege, what a husband or a wife say to each other can't be compelled against their will. We have a priest penitent privilege. We have an attorney client privilege. We even now have a psychotherapist patient privilege. So we have a lot of privileges against compelled disclosure of confidential information out of a policy to try to encourage candor in special relationships. We want clients to be candid to their lawyers, patients to be candid to their doctors, spouses to be candid to one another, and we think that they'll be chilled if the, they can be forced to turn over information. So the ancient law of evidence, as reflected in the federal rules of evidence, as well as common law in the states and the federal system, has always re re recognized a variety of privileges. And you might think that the privilege as to reporters and their sources ought to be even super stronger than all of those privileges, because after all, we have a social interest in the free flow of information. We view the press as the kind of fourth branch of government that gets out there to keep the rest of it honest. And if we didn't have reporters who could keep their sources confidential, we couldn't have leaks that disclose to the citizenry all those bad things the government is doing or all those issues of public interest that the citizenry should know about. So you might think there's an argument for privilege that's at least as strong as other privileges like priest, penitent, psychotherapist, uh, uh, patient, spousal privilege and the like, and you might think there's a super strong interest because of the First Amendment. So why have the courts resisted the idea that there should be a privilege for reporters to withhold information about their sources? Well, I think there are, th there are three reasons. First, the courts are worried that they don't want to get into defining who is the press. You know who your spouse is, right? You Arguably. know who your doctor is. You know if your doctor is a doctor because he's got to have a license on the wall. Your attorney has to have a license on your wall, but it's still permissible for Bob or Walter to go out and practice journalism without a license. And there's a reason for that, and it's called the First Amendment. We actually don't think it's permissible under the First Amendment to license the press. That was what, where the word censorship comes from, the idea that you have to have a license to print. So there's first an uncertainty over if the press has a special privilege, who is the press? We don't know uh, the identity of the press as easily as we do other privilege bearers. And in fact, if we start having courts inquire into, well, Walter and Bob, these are great journalists. Of course, they get the privilege. But these bloggers who put things up on their blog, who are they? We don't know who they are. Even the famous ones, Matt Drudge, should he have a privilege? And if the courts begin to distinguish Walter and Bob from all the other people who say they're journalists out there, then we start having the, the court making decisions that actually uh, are like the licensor. The second reason the court is hesitant about the privilege is that the courts, including in Brandsburg, are empirically doubtful that it's going to have this big chilling effect on the press. 
Justice White in the Brandsburg decision said, we, gee, the free press has been around for 200 years. I don't see it drying up out there. I don't see the, the, the press really losing all these confidential sources. I read about leaks every day. I haven't really seen this chilling effect if we call reporters before the grand jury. And there's empirical doubt that that empirical doubt of will the press really be chilled if grand juries can subpoena reporters to reveal their sources, that empirical doubt is increased when the press is perceived as overusing confidentiality. You know, it's one thing to hear from deep throat that President Nixon is covering up an egregious crime uh, against by the by the by Republican committee members against the opposing party. It's one thing to find out that there were no weapons of mass destruction and intelligence sources knew it. It's another thing to have a confidential source that tells you that Britney Spears is pregnant. Right? So if you have an overuse of the supposed confidential source privilege to cover up secrets that the court doesn't think were really at the core of the First Amendment, there begins to be a little suspicion that the use of confidential sources will get excessive or that trade secrets by Apple will be revealed by somebody to a so-called journalist who runs a blog and, and the world, the trade secret will be destroyed around the world and people will claim press privilege because it was on a blog uh, rather than simply a, a, a pawn shop uh, fencing stolen goods. And the concern about overuse of the press leads the, leave the, lead the courts to be dubious about the First Amendment claim. And I think the third reason is there's a lot of trust in the informal safeguards of the system. Walter will be able to work something out with Patrick Fitzgerald. The prosecutors aren't going to go overboard. They're not going to lightly use subpoenas and the contempt power and put people in jail. And guess what? If they do, we have a hero. We have a new press hero, right? The press gets to... <laughs> claim a lot of uh, uh, martyrdom from actually being imprisoned over, over being called before a grand jury and refusing to reveal their secrets. Book contracts are made, film contracts, the sequel. In fact, the press has a tremendous power to resort to self-help, to self-protection. And in fact, the government's terrified of the press. The press, run, the press controls the image of the government. And so what prosecutor is really going to risk and what congressional committee issuing a subpoena is really going to risk the ire of the editorial boards of all the people who, who determine how they're viewed by the public. So I think the court kind of thinks this may be an area where the press and government can kind of duke it out themselves, a little bit like we let disputes between Congress and the executive over executive privilege. We let Congress kind of duke it out themselves. We, we don't necessarily let lawyers come in and tell Dick Cheney what he has to reveal or what uh, Bill Clinton had to reveal or what George Bush had to reveal. So what's the state of play? And then, I'm sorry, then I'll wrap it up. No, state of play is there's no special First Amendment journalist privilege under existing Supreme Court law, but the lower courts have put a thumb on the scale to favor journalists in the way that they interrogate the, pre the, the prosecutors about whether they really need journalist sources before they invoke the subpoena power and the contempt power. In, partly in response to Brandsburg, most states have, 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 have a press shield law for state proceedings. So 31 states have a press shield statute that gives a statutory privilege to the press, and all, all but Wyoming, all the states and the District of Columbia, all but Wyoming have a common law privilege that's like the spousal privilege for journalists. But that doesn't help you in federal court. So federal prosecutors aren't bound by any of those state laws. So the issue for federal prosecutors and for Congress is should Congress pass a federal press shield statute, well, with press ratings low and press approval ratings hovering kind of around the president's, not at the high end of the scale, 
Uh, it's not clear that Congress has the political will to pass a press shield law. So the second option for what could happen to federal subpoenas is we could have courts interpreting the federal rules of evidence to incorporate a kind of common law journalistic privilege the way the federal rules of evidence have incorporated other common law privileges over time. And that's a route that uh, one judge on the D.C. Circuit, Judge Tatel, just suggested in a recent decision rejecting an appeal from the contempt holding against Judith Miller. So states can fix it for the states, common law or statute. All, all of them have, almost all of them have by common law. Over half of them have by statute. Congress could fix it by statute, but hasn't yet, may not want to. Or courts could fix it by interpreting the federal rules of evidence to have a kind of privilege for reporters. But until then, reporters are pretty much at the mercy of their uh, negotiating skills with the prosecutors and the prosecutors' underdeveloped capacity for self-restraint. Okay, guys, so you have your work cut out for you. Um, uh, since you have no privilege, uh, or no privileges, um, you are claiming privileges, correct? Bob, do you want to tell us about the sure. Wen Ho Lee case? Uh, thank you all. It's a great honor to be here. Uh, everything Kathleen just said, of course, is true. Uh, and now I'm going to tell you why it's irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> because we are involved in a case that has nothing to do with that, or very little, which is to say, let me explain what this case is about and, and, uh, and why it's different. Uh, why, why reporters, I think, are in such hot water today and why I think it's going to get a lot worse. Um, in August of 2002, I was served with a subpoena, uh, and it essentially demanded that I identify my confidential sources uh, for stories that I wrote for the Los Angeles Times concerning Wen Ho Lee. Uh, you may remember Wen Ho Lee was a uh, scientist. He was an engineer at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Uh, he worked in the nuclear weapons section, which, um, as Dave Barry uh, would say, uh, you know, I'm not making this up, it was called the X Division. Uh, the FBI investigated Dr. Lee and his wife on and off for 15 years uh, on suspicion that he might be a spy. And in the end, they focused on whether or not he had provided, illegally provided the secrets of uh, one of America's most advanced nuclear, thermonuclear warheads called the W88 to China. Uh, the case uh, first broke in the Wall Street Journal, then in the Washington Post, and subsequently in a very broad uh, story in the New York Times. Uh, Dr. Lee, uh, and when it did break, it, it caused uh, quite a witch hunt in Washington. Uh, at one point, I think I counted 16 separate uh, congressional committees, subcommittees, independent panels, uh, and various groups issuing reports, holding hearings, uh, uh, you know, leading investigations. Uh, government witnesses testified uh, that Dr. Lee's actions uh, at this point, or that, or that if this crime had been committed, uh, literally put the nation's survival at risk. Uh, he was branded the spy of the century. Uh, obviously, this was a big story. Um, the FBI screwed the case up. Uh, there's been no doubt about that. One of their witnesses uh, lied. Uh, as, as one of the prosecutors said to me subsequently, he said, you know, when you're a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist or a prosecutor in a national security case, the one word you don't want to hear is oops, uh, and that's what the FBI did. Dr. Lee was targeted uh, in part because he was ethnic Chinese and knew people in China. They bungled his polygraph, and it was never really clear uh, if he, uh, well, it was never really clear if he was up to no good or if he was just an absent-minded scientist. Uh, and more importantly, we never did find out if China did obtain or did steal the W88. In the end, he was charged with 59 counts of mishandling classified information. Uh, it was not an insignificant charge, uh, but it was not espionage. He had copied 50 years' worth of 
weapons data and uh, design and testing data and put it on portable tapes. Uh, he was arrested. He was held for nine months in solitary confinement. He pleaded guilty to one felony count, and uh, the tapes, I might add, were never found. In the, I tell you all of this because Dr. Lee's lawyers filed the lawsuit in the middle of this thing. They sued the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Energy uh, in a, uh, using something called the Privacy Act. Uh, they said that the release of various information had violated his rights under the Privacy Act, uh, and the reason this is different from what Kathleen was saying is because this was a civil case. It was not a criminal case. They were suing the federal government. Basically, the kind of information, the, ba the, the kind of police blotter information that I just told you, that I just relayed to you, the name of the suspect, where he worked, his wife's name, his ethnicity, his travel, his polygraph results, and so on, was information, he, was cla he claimed, that this was information that was legally protected under the Privacy Act and that it should never have been released without his permission. It was irrespective of the fact of whether he was innocent or guilty of any crime. In theory, in fact, he could well have been convicted of espionage and been sitting on death row and have filed this claim. Dr. Lee's lawyers deposed about 20 federal officials. They all denied improper leaking. He then came after the press. He came after the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Associated Press, and CNN. These are big news organizations, obviously. We all, uh, uh, and he demanded that we tell him who our various sources were for the improper, what he claimed were the, was the improper leaking of this information. Um, I, I have to confess that I consider this a case of uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, Walter and his colleagues at the Washington Post and, and my colleagues and I at the LA Times had written a number of stories during this process that we felt had in fact exposed the government's abuses against Dr. Lee and the FBI's bungling of the case. And, and I think some of us felt that we had helped him get out of jail. Uh, I, I have to tell you that uh, Dr. Lee's defense lawyers uh, welcomed some of those stories, and I'm going to confess a secret to you. You know, Dr. Lee's lawyers talked to reporters during this time. It's, it's a shock, I know, to you, but, but you know, <laughs> they were doing this. We were all deposed. We all declined to identify our confidential sources. Uh, we, in various ways, took the uh, military equivalent of, you know, name, rank, and First Amendment. I, I respectfully declined to do these things. Uh, we were declared in contempt of court and fined uh, $500 a day pending appeal that uh, we're still appealing. Uh, so far, we have lost at every level. Uh, the current judge in our case has made clear she will impose uh, what she called personal penalties. Uh, if uh, we don't comply with her contempt, uh, which we interpret as personal, you know, jail. We have filed a petition uh, for cert to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court will hear that, uh, will consider that petition this week on the 11th, uh, Thursday, yeah? And so we anticipate hearing uh, by the beginning of next week as to whether or not the Supreme Court will hear what is now listed as Drogan et al. v. Lee. Um, why is this important? And this gets again to what Kathleen was saying, because this is not a criminal case. This is not, we are not accused of breaking the law. We are not accused of publishing classified information. We are not accused of witnessing a crime. We are not accused of outing a covert CIA agent. We are not accused of publishing libel. We are not accused of getting our facts wrong. We are not even being sued. We are, what we are are caught up as collateral damage, if you will, in Dr. Lee's lawsuit against the government. Legal term, we are called non-party. We are, our case marks the first time in American history that a federal appeals court has affirmed contempt against non-party reporters in a civil case, for refusing to reveal sources in a civil case. 
The irony of all of this, from where I sit, is that the Privacy Act was enacted in 1974 as one of the reforms coming out of Watergate. And it was specifically enacted to, defer, to deter the kind of abuses we saw in Watergate, in which the Nixon White House was releasing information, such as tax returns, to smear their political opponents. There, there's nothing in the legislative history that suggests it was to be aimed or could, to be used against reporters in a Privacy Act case for a civil suit against the government. Similarly, the federal courts in that era protected, recognized the Washington Post's, Post's right to protect the identity of Deep Throat. The Post maintained that, as we all know, until Mark Felt ultimately outed himself last year. What I believe, and my colleagues believe, is that the Privacy Act now is being turned upside down. It's being used to curtail what we think is the kind of journalism that the law was passed to protect in the first place. Because if we lose this case, it's very hard to see how reporters can make the same kind of credible promise of confidentiality to Deep Throat or to anyone else. Anyone who can't win a libel suit, who's involved in a federal case, if this case goes forward, can file, arguably can file a Privacy Act case to compel a reporter to give up his or her sources. Stephen Hatfield, who uh, was a bioweapons scientist whose name uh, came out during the investigation of the anthrax letters, has filed such a suit. He's got uh, subpoenas against 12 news organizations. They have began depositions. I learned this morning another lawsuit, another Privacy Act case has been, a uh, copycat case has been filed against my paper. Uh, basically, if you can't win a libel suit, this is th going to be the way to go. Uh, I tend not to be a the sky is falling kind of guy. The sky looks pretty darn shaky from where I sit right now. The, you know, you talk of a chilling effect, this is a blizzard. I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming down. Does that matter? You know, aren't we all reporters too high and mighty and all of that? Uh, you have talked about, you know, the, the confusion in the, the fact that the states have protected, have passed various protections. They're all over the map. On the federal case, they're even, as you know, further divided. The, uh, the various circuits in federal courts, uh, the federal, sorry, the various federal circuits have made decisions on these kinds of issues uh, all over the map. It's one, realize, it's one reason that in our case, uh, the state, 18 state attorneys general have filed an amicus supporting our petition for cert before the Supreme Court. So have 34 news organizations. Um, perhaps the best explanation of how divided the courts are on this is that when we lost our appeal uh, in the DC circuit, the, when you go up first, you go up before three judges and we lost that three to nothing. We then appealed to the full court, what's known as the en banc court. Because Judge Roberts had already sort of moved up to the Supremes, we, uh, they, there were only eight judges, and they split four to four on this. There were three dissents uh, on that, but you needed a majority, so, so we didn't, they didn't take our case. Um, unfortunately, I, as you were saying, Ann, I, I think our case is part of a, uh, a surge right now. Uh, some people have called it unprecedented, and I, I suspect that's right, of federal subpoenas. Uh, of contempt citations, of leak investigations, and uh, other proceedings. Uh, the issue is not new. It goes back to Peter Zenger and, you know, to the founding of the Republic. Uh, but for most of our history, uh, subpoenas that were seeking the identity of confidential sources were very rare and almost never resulted in findings of contempt. I think we're going to start to see a great deal more of that. Um, we're in what I believe very uncharted waters and, and very dangerous waters at this point. Um, is all of this having an effect on reporters? Um, which, uh, and, and the answer is yes and no. Uh, 
since my own view is that since Republicans control both houses of Congress and the White House, uh, the role of the press as a watchdog of the government is more important than ever. Um, the Democrats can't call for a congressional investigation. You know, they just uh, so whistleblowers and sources or whatever you want to call them don't really have a great deal of, of options except to come to the press. And, um, and, and that's happening, to bring important, important issues, scandals, and abuses to public light. That's what our, I believe, First Amendment is for. It's the way the system works. It's the way it's supposed to work. The most recent Pulitzers for the NSA spying, uh, domestic spying case, uh, for the uh, CIA secret prisons, the Jack Abramoff case, the Randy Cunningham case, I think these are proof of that. They have nowhere else to go. Um, at the same time, I think newsrooms, we are all re-examining the way we do our business. Um, the fact is, uh, people request anonymity, especially in Washington, for all sorts of reasons, but not all sources are the same, not all information is the same. Um, I think there's a greater recognition now uh, that perhaps not every source deserves the same kind of, I'll go to jail for you, my paper will spend a million dollars to fight this to the Supreme Court. Uh, kind of pledge that's always been implicit and, re and rarely discussed, frankly, because we've always had the assumption we could do that. I think there's a greater effort now to convince people to go on the record than there might have been, uh, and a greater discussion, at least, in the newsrooms as to what confidential sources status really means. Um, at the same time, I think many of us are doing more to protect our sources and to protect ourselves. Um, I'm convinced, for example, that emails and Computer records are gonna be the death of all of us. Someday, uh, they are the devil's tool. Uh, so I make you know, sensitive phone calls, I go through a company switchboard, or I do them outside of my home or outside of my office so they can't be traced to my phone. I take important notes by mail, I use code names in some cases, and I destroy notes on a regular basis. And I have to tell you, I felt pretty good about you know, my tradecraft, so to speak, in this issue, until I mentioned to a colleague that I shred my notes now and he looked at me with a mixture of sort of pity and contempt, and he said, you shred, I use a burn bag. Um, Porter Goss, uh, Porter Goss, who just resigned, as you know, from the uh, last week as the head of the CIA, told a Senate committee early this year that he hopes a grand jury will drag reporters in in the NSA uh, spying story to find out who their sources are. Um, Mr. Goss, also wrote an op-ed piece that said, in effect, that whistleblowers uh, are not noble and public-spirited, but are traitors who cause severe damage to national security. Um, and I'm sure that's true in some cases. I have no doubt about it. But I am reminded of a warning that I got uh, when I first moved to Washington in 1998, and I had lunch with a man named uh, John Martin, who I know Walter knows, who was the prosecutor in uh, for espionage cases for 25 years and never lost a case. And he said to me, uh, he said, you, the most important thing you know is that the two most dangerous words in the English language are national security. Um, and he said, because the, the abuses that take place behind that wall are the thing that you always have to watch out for. Uh, it's, it's invoked, national security is invoked to hide government abuses or failures or, malfe or malfeasance or just to shield elected officials from political embarrassment. Um, that, to me, is the lesson of the case I'm involved in, the Wen Ho Lee case. Uh, it's the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. It's the weapons of mass destruction fiasco in Iraq. All the other major stories that have basically emerged in the press because people were willing to talk to the press. Um, I think it's why we're fighting this case, and um, I think that's what the First Amendment is for.
Okay, thank you. Um, there's another first, um, Walter, which maybe you can shed some light on. Um, uh, if we're seeing these privacy cases um, kind of pop up, we're, we also are seeing a first with the APAC case um, and subpoenas coming down um, that way. C can you explain uh, to the group how, how you see that shaking out and, and what impact that may have on, on reporters? Um, I have to start with sort of an odd point of view because okay. uh, having been subpoenaed in the Wenho Lee case and then subpoenaed in the Plain case uh, and having done it for a long time, uh, the view I've had has always been roughly the same, which is uh, I've always dealt with people who, uh, sources, who are, um, by giving me information uh, that's classified, and I'm really talking about people in the national security business, uh, by giving me information that's classified, they are risking their jobs, and they are also risking potential jail terms. And uh, it's my feeling, which is not universal in the press, that we ought to face the same uh, situation, and which makes me very careful about how I use the information, very careful to make sure it's true information, make sure that I understand the context of it, and make sure it's something that ought to be printed. And uh, I think uh, both Kathleen and Bob have made it clear confidential sources sort of run the gamut. I mean, I'm happy to hear the Britney Spears thing because I use it all the time. Uh, somebody telling you that Britney Spears is pregnant but don't say I said it uh, is one of the sort of areas of confidential sources. The second area which has become very popular is the political consultant or the aide on the campaign trail who tells you on background either something terrible about your opponent or depending on just how trustworthy something terrible about his own candidate. But of course I don't want to be quoted on that. Um, there also is a habit of journalists who hear things and try to talk people into saying it uh, because they won't say it on the record that will guarantee confidentiality. Uh, I think that is what people are most worried about when they come to confidential sources. Uh, and it's something that I think the press has taken uh, way too far and it's gotten the rest of us that are trying to sort of deal with national security um, made that life that much more difficult. Uh, I've done it for 25 or how many years, I, I don't like to say, but uh, this is the first time that uh, I've ever been subpoenaed. I've had investigations of stories I've done. I've had other people investigated for things I've written about but it's the first time that it's ever come back to me. And the irony of the Plame case is that this, a lot of what we do is self-inflicted because I don't know how, how much you know about the case. This is a case in which um, people around the White House, and certainly in the case of Bob Novak, gave him information about 
the wife of Ambassador Joe Wilson, who was criticizing the administration, and particularly about a trip he took to Niger to undercut the famous 16 words about uranium in Africa. And uh, by disclosing to Bob Novak her name and her role uh, working for the CIA, um, they attempted to undercut Wilson's trip and to get people to believe that uh, it wasn't all that important. And the column was published on, on July 14th, 2003. Two days before that, I got a call from somebody uh, in the administration telling me exactly the same thing. Uh, but I never printed it and didn't print it because a month earlier I had printed a story about Wilson's trip and talked to everybody uh, that has, everybody except for Carl Rove, who's been involved in the case since. And not one person mentioned uh, Valerie playing Wilson's wife, playing any role uh, in setting up Wilson's trip, having him go and having him report. Uh, and so I didn't print it, uh, Bob did. And then what happened is quite interesting. It was picked up first by The Nation and then by Newsday uh, in a story that said by telling Valerie Plain's name, they had violated a law which makes it illegal to identify covert CIA operatives. And it happened that, that uh, Valerie was undercover at the time. Uh, you, that was then picked up later by Joe Wilson, which was then picked up by the Democrats. And pretty soon there was pressure to have a criminal investigation of this based on that act. Uh, I didn't write about it until it became clear, until it was announced that there was a criminal investigation. And then I wrote a story in which I said a Washington Post reporter had been called two days earlier, uh, given the same information. But in, in my case, I thought it was just damage control. They just wanted to get me to stop writing about Wilson. I didn't think it violated uh, the act, that the intent and all the rest of it you need with the act. That's the problem of having gone to law school. I've become petty about the law. And, um, I wrote at a time when the grand jury was going, and I also knew that it lay me open to the subpoena that eventually came. But I did it because I thought the public ought to know that, that at least in one case, there was a belief it was not a crime. But the New York Times made a crusade out of it, editorially kept pushing and pushing, and of course it turned around and came around and bit the New York Times uh, in the Judy Miller case. Uh, and even now with the indictment taking place, you see there's no, uh, nobody has been indicted for disclosing the name of Valerie Plain or violating any kind of act other than committing perjury uh, in the course of the investigation. Uh, I go back through all that because these laws are quite precise. That brings us to the case of these two lobbyists who uh, work for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, who back in last October were indicted under the Espionage Act, which is the 1917 Espionage Act, which in part says it is illegal for a non-authorized person to receive national defense information 
national defense information never defined. It's not classified information. It's national defense information. And to receive it and to transmit it. And in fact, after they receive it, one of the elements of the law is there to return it. And it was a law passed in 1917. It was really uh, based on fear of, of uh, troop movements, secret plans, and all the rest of it. Uh, but in using this act uh, against two non-government civilians, uh, those two men are standing in the shoes of not just journalists, because we do it all the time, but also academics who do study of national security, you know, think tank people. Uh, any one of those could be caught up in this act. Uh, there has been for years uh, a gentleman's agreement, actually since the Pentagon Papers case, that the government would not go after, although the act is so loose, uh, people who gather that information as journalists and publish it. And in fact, in the Pentagon Papers case, uh, Justice Potter Stewart, among other people, who supported the New York Times and then supported us when it involved prior restraint, in other words, trying to stop a paper from printing information, said, in fact, in uh, their concurring opinion, that the Nixon administration should have waited till the information was published and then gone after them under the Espionage Act. And in fact, in the APAC case, the government is using that sort of dicta from Justice Stewart as the basis for their activity. And in their filings, they've made clear that this could apply not just to the lobbyists, but could apply to journalists, academics, and other people. So it's my view the, the APAC case uh, is a much more dangerous and broader issue for an administration that wants to use it uh, than even the Plame case in which, as Kathleen says, and I agree, the law is abundantly clear when it comes to sources and uh, our inability to fight it. Um, and I think that, that uh, it has become a, a puzzling issue for the judge in the case. There's been a motion to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that the uh, Espionage Act is much too vague because there is no definition of what national defense information could be. As part of my younger life in the 60s, I ran two investigations for Senator Fulbright and in both of them, I was involved in clearing closed transcripts and deciding what is classified and what isn't is a kind of game inside government because one agency can classify something and some other agency won't classify it and publish it. And it, there, there are no rules as to what ought to be classified and what isn't classified. One of the biggest fights we had in clearing the hearing on the U.S. military abroad was in a closed hearing, Senator Fulbright called then President Marcos of the Philippines a crook, and the administration wanted to classify it. Uh, and of course, Senator Fulbright, being Fulbright, wouldn't do it, and we printed, we ended up at loggerheads with the State Department and printed the transcript the way we thought it ought to be uh, 
published and the world didn't end uh, because what they thought was classified information got released. So I think the APAC case is, is a bigger threat, to be honest, uh, than, than certainly the Plame case and, and even the Wen Ho Lee case, which, uh, as Bob uh, so wonderfully put, is, is, a, is a threat to all of us. I mean, I get wild in my speeches and say, if you ever uh, catch Osama bin Laden, he could use uh, the Privacy Act to say his rights have been <laughs> denied him because it, the information is accurate. Uh, but it is released out of the mouths of government officials, uh, and it tends to demean uh, to the recipient of it. Uh, the the Ho Lee case, the one part that I always hang on to, is the Ho Lee case was originally brought in the midst of the investigation because the lawyers for Ho Lee felt the leaks uh, were uh, making, at, at the time it was just being an investigation, uh, they wanted to sort of stop it. Uh, the, f the final complaint, which was filed after he was in effect, after he pleaded guilty, but most people, and I bet the same would exist in this audience who keep track, think he was found innocent when he really was guilty of a felony. Uh, nobody's ever found the tapes that he made that have all the nuclear secrets on them, and that after he uh, pled guilty in his in his when he's being debriefed, he said for the first told the government for the first time that he had actually spent a summer in Taiwan's version of Los Alamos uh, doing work in their nuclear uh, facility for which he was paid $5,000, which he never admitted, having received before he made the disclosure afterwards. Um, so he's, he is not the total innocent, but the thrust of the complaint is that if it hadn't been for the leaks, he wouldn't have been indicted. If he if it hadn't been indicted, he wouldn't have had to plead guilty. And uh, the government has never attempted to get summary judgment, which is try to end the case on the grounds that he's not going to win, even if it goes to, to trial, uh, because the government has Bob and myself and three other reporters hung up in the middle, so they can't lose as long as we don't give away our sources. So you've got a combination of this new use of the Privacy Act uh, by individuals about whom our accurate stories are written. And then you have uh, the APAC case. I think both of those prevent re present real problems for journalists. On the other hand, and we'll get around to it eventually, the answer for journalism I don't think is a shield law. Uh, I'm against uh, shield law, which gets my paper very upset. Uh, partly because, as Kathleen said, and I believe because I wrote a paper in law school about attorney-client privilege, that, that we shouldn't make ourselves different and have a privilege by statute. I don't think we ought to go to the Congress, which we cover and which we, uh, uh, like other lobbyists, and try to get a law that just benefits us. I think as we are arguing in court 
that there should be a common law privilege. There is a common law privilege. There's an outlaw for, outline for a common law privilege in the Judge Tatel's decision and to some degree in Justice Powell's uh, concurring decision in Brandsburg. And I think that's the way we ought to go. And otherwise, I think we ought to take our chances. And I, I guess I'm for one uh, willing to do it and you have to sort of uh, watch and see what happens. But I believe it's very important for us to keep doing the kind of reporting we're doing. But I think uh, the privilege, it, it's, it's the irony of the press, as, as I always keep saying, it's, it's attorney-client privilege, it's priest-penitent, it's doctor-lawyer, but it's the reporter's privilege. Well, it really isn't. It's the source's privilege. Because a source can, you know, I can be sworn to secrecy and not tell it, and he can call Bob Drogan up 20 minutes later and go on the record, and I can't do a thing about it. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it is a very complicated event, but I think uh, I, f I feel much more comfortable uh, taking my chances and sort of um, doing stories as they come and having to weigh the dangers that I face uh, than I do uh, going to Congress and pleading for something that I think uh, could turn around and bite us because it protects sources. And, and I promise you, most people who you don't know who want to have confidentiality most often are not, at least in my case, giving me accurate information. And, and you don't publish one person's information. You have to get other people. So it's, there are multiple sources involved. Um, so I think that's... I feel much more comfortable with that position uh, than I do with seeking legislation. Now, Bob, you don't agree with that, right? You're for shield law? Well, I, I am in theory. Federal I mean, I don't law? think it's, it's, you know, I'm in favor of world peace, too. I, I don't think either of them is very likely. Um, you know, and I think you're absolutely right, Kathleen. I mean, the, where we're likely to get wind up here is, is a, uh, uh, you know, that the courts have to step in at some point and, and create a common law privilege. The problem is that at least on the federal level, there is such confusion. And unless, you know, uh, you know, you have, you have clearly you have Brandsburg in which they've, they've obviously stood by that through the Plame decision by refusing to take the Judy Miller appeal. Uh, and now we have this case and we'll see if they decide to try and clarify this kind of issue, but I, you know, I think a shield law, if it if it creates some kind of privilege, and you know, it depends how obviously it's worded. That is, or it creates some kind of guidelines, or uh, you know, that that gives reporters some kind of protection in federal federal courts. I think, barring the refusal of the courts to step into this thing, because up until now, what we've seen, as you as you described, is since Brandsburg, there has been this kind of gentleman's agreement, if you will. That there, right. It's really been, we've, re, I, I've discovered belatedly that rights that I thought I had, you know, were just because it was the custom. And I've now had nine judges tell me I don't have those rights. W one of the very curious things, we were talking about this at lunch, is that reporters, you know, and I think this is, gets to what, what uh, Walter was saying, reporters are the only people in America who think that when we lose in the Supreme Court, we can say, well, we don't care. You know, the hell with you. We'll do what we want anyway. And we'll go to jail. I mean, nobody else does that. When, you know, when lawyers lose a case, they usually they obey the court. When Richard Nixon, of all people, when he lost in, you know, the Watergate tapes case, he turned over the tapes. You know, when Al Gore lost his case, 
He gave up the White House. Reporters get to the White House, get to the Supreme Court, and Judy Miller goes to jail. We're the only people who do that, and that makes me a little uncomfortable about waving the First Amendment too loudly because, you know, do I have more rights than... I mean, the First Amendment is about Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of the press. It's not about abridging the freedom of, you know, jockeys or chiropractors or something. But do I have more rights than a chiropractor? Do I have more rights than you? Well, you know, if they pass a law, the answer is yes, I guess. Kathleen, do you think there, there's a need for, that the courts should step in here with a federal shield law, or just they I thought I got to play the history lesson part. <laughs> <laughs> just part. asking your opinion. Well, I thought these were just two terrific presentations. I learned so much from them, and to hear the people who are on the line is extremely moving compared with the kinds of abstract discussions we have in freedom of speech or journalism classes. So I appreciate both gentlemen's remarks very, very much. I think that what we've laid out so far makes it clear that bright lines and absolute rules are inadequate to deal with this situation because, as both gentlemen have described, some leaks are heroic and essential to a democracy, and some leaks are the government spinning the reporter for its own purposes and are harmful to democracy, and some leaks are about subjects too trivial to really warrant the First Amendment's grand concern. And so probably a balancing test of the kind that Lewis Powell was hinting at and which Judge Tatel was hinting at with respect to a common law privilege is probably the best way to resolve it with a fair amount of discretion in the courts to police the gentleman's agreement and to make sure that reporters are protected when First Amendment values suggest that it's appropriate but not overprotected in a way that undermines our sense about the importance of the First Amendment. So although I often favor rules for other contexts, I think they're desirable when possible. This is not an area that seems easily susceptible to bright line rules. And so the most a statute could do is throw it back to the courts anyway, so there's not a whole lot of practical difference really between a federal common law approach developed through the judges and uh, Congress trying to lay it out. Um, that said, I do think that it would be helpful if the press could exercise the kind of self-restraint and self-regulation that will help keep the gentleman's agreement going. And I think the press did itself some disservice in uh, a case called Cohen versus Coles Media. This is a case in which, um, having said in Brandsburg, well, listen, if you subpoena us to grand juries, our confidential sources won't talk to us anymore. Our sources will dry up, and the press will be deprived of a great deal of information. You'll kill the goose that laid the golden egg, so to speak, as we won't get confidential information anymore if we can't keep it secret. Then along came a case where the press made a decision to disclose the identity of who leaked negative information about a political candidate. Well, it was the head of the other guy's campaign. And the press thought, well, that's newsworthy. We're revealing a shoplifting conviction of candidate B, but the source was candidate A's press guy. Let's tell the world that it was candidate A's press guy. The only thing is they'd promise candidate A's press guy confidentiality. And then you guessed it, the guy sues for breach of contract and, and promissory estoppel. You violated my confidentiality. You owe me damages. I lost my job in the campaign, and now nobody will hire me, and you owe me money. And guess what the press did? It came out and said, oh, well, we have a First Amendment right to reveal our confidential sources. Now, when you come out and you say, I have a confidential right, a First Amendment right to keep my sources confidential, and then you come in the next Supreme Court case and you say, I have a First Amendment right to reveal my confidential sources, you know, it's a little bit of an emperor has no, no, no clothes moment, and it was a moment in which Justice White, who wrote Brandsburg, came out and he said, no, the press is like every man here. If you decide to break a, conflict, a contract, you should pay the damages. It's fine if you want to disclose, but pay the guy his money. 
So I think that the First Amendment shouldn't be overused as a cloak for an absolute autonomy for the press. I think what the press was saying that was consistent between Brandsburg, its argument against revealing the information, and Cohen versus Coles Media, the argument for being able to reveal when it decided so, is the press wants to say, well, we're the arbiter of what should and shouldn't be revealed. We have a special thing called editorial discretion. We're the fourth branch. We know. Uh, when to when to reveal things and when to call things secret, we should be the arbiters of the First Amendment balance. And I think when the press overclaims autonomy, it may suffer some of the same uh, problems that, say, the executive branch claims when it overclaims for executive secrecy. Of course, you need a certain amount of confidentiality within the executive branch to make sure that aides can talk to the president, the president can talk to the first lady, and so forth. But if you claim executive secrecy over everything, including you know committees that involve private citizens, then you've overplayed the executive secrecy hand, and you claim that the executive has too much power. And I think the press probably wants to, the institutional press would do itself a great favor by being more measured in the claims of First Amendment privilege that it does, does assert, so that we can uh, uphold the important values that I think Bob articulated so eloquently when they really matter. And it hurts a lot when the person, you know, we, we created this right as a kind of left right against a right wing government. Then what happens when you've got a right wing government spinning reporters and reporters becoming the tool of the press? Then the politics get all confused and we don't know what to think. And I think the, the the instinct to think that the press privilege should have to prove itself a little bit. You'd have to you have to show that you've really got to withhold it this time. The government's got to come in and show it really needs it. But I think the press ought to also be, be asking itself, do we really need to keep this one secret? And as to the heroic people who reveal the information, as as Walter so eloquently described some of his sources. You know, Martin Luther King, writing from the Birmingham jail, said that if you're going to be civil disobedient, you ought to take the punishment, that part of what showing a government to be an unjust government is about is being willing to do so transparently. And so if uh, there's a great whistleblower, if Daniel Ellsberg wants to steal the Pentagon Papers and reveal them and put himself before the criminal, the, the, the criminal system, that can be a great thing for democracy. It may not, may not, the, the press may not have an obligation to keep all whistleblowers secret secrets, and some whistleblowers maybe have a, both a practical uh, imperative and a moral obligation to be more forward about it. Um, that's maybe the one tiny bit of truth in the Porter Goss article, which I otherwise agree is, is very problematic. So just to sum up, I think a balance approach, a balancing approach probably is essential here. Both sides should avoid violating the gentleman's agreement in a sense. The press shouldn't overclaim and prosecutors shouldn't overuse. And I agree absolutely that unless we can find that balance, there are true dangers to our democracy and the overuse of subpoenas to go after the press. I, I would just, believe me, I wouldn't, don't want to be in this case if I didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not here voluntarily. <laughs> uh, sure. And, and I want to just absolutely agree with Bob that the balance it looks very different for a civil case in which a private litigant is just seeking to get damages than it is in a criminal case. I think the government's need to go after the reporter's information is far less, and we ought to second guess some of the self-interest of the person who benefited from the press then turning to bite the hand that feeds them. So again, a balancing approach might take into account the difference between a civil litigant abusing the press that helped him and a grand jury subpoena where you've really exhausted every other source and you can't find out from anyone else who outed Valerie Plame without going to the reporter. Um, we're going we're gonna to open this up for questions, so if you want to come down to the mics, please um, uh, line up. But um, while you're doing that, um, Kathleen, let me ask you one other question here in terms of prosecutor prosecutorial overreach. Um, do you share Walter's view that the, this espionage um, uh, 
the use of the 1917 Espionage Act is is of as share his concerns with that? Uh, absolutely. I think there, there is actually perfect timing for the panel. There's an op-ed piece in the New York Times today by Jeffrey Stone, former dean of the Chicago Law School and a First Amendment expert, making a, an excellent argument about why the application of the Espionage Act to journalists really implicates very serious First Amendment values. And we've always had a kind of exception for the press. You know, when the Pentagon Papers were leaked. Uh, there was potential criminal liability for Ellsberg and the leakers inside the government, the government agents. Not only could they be fired, they could be criminally prosecuted. But there was a, a discussion in the Pentagon Papers about how, of course, you couldn't criminally indict the New York Times or the Washington Post or their, uh, or their editors. And I think that exception of the press from the statute has been, is the correct understanding of the statute. And if the statute were to reach dissemination by the press, it would raise serious concerns about prior restraint and First Amendment values. Okay, I just want to ask one last question of you guys because you're on the front line to hear. We, we've talked a lot about the chilling effect. Um, can, can you just sort of share your, to the extent you're comfortable, sort of um, how do you feel? Is there a, a chill? Uh, do you feel a chill on, um, from your sources in, in um, what's happening? And, you know, what the, one of the ironies here is that um, since these subpoenas have uh, popped up, we've, we've We've gotten some of the most um, secret stories um, that we've had in a long time. The um, prisons, the, the ones that just won the Pulitzer Prize, the, the secret CIA prisons in Eastern Europe and the um, wiretapping stories. So you guys want to share that and then we'll have the audience. I mean, I can, you know, clearly there's great journalism that's being committed out there. You know, people are doing wonderful stories. And, and um, I, I can tell you that I have had sources who talked to me a year ago who are now very nervous. Under Porter Goss, there was a, uh, a series of investigations uh, in the CIA, you know, polygraph tests and whatnot, and people became very nervous. But, you know, it, it's not an easy, I'm not whining here, I mean, it's not an easy job, you know, to try and get people to talk about things they're not supposed to, to talk. I think it's difficult. I mean, we, we, there is that one case of a newspaper in Ohio that refused to print a story, and he publicly said afterwards he wasn't going to print it because they were afraid they were going to have to they'd get dragged in on that. I mean, there are issues. You know, I think we're in a stage now where, um, you know, it's more that we're in a, in, a, in a position now where you can look at the, the broad array of these various cases between the, the civil stuff that's happening, the plame case in which reporters are going to be put on the stand and have to testify about you know, how they got their information and what was said, uh, uh, assuming that case goes to trial, uh, the, the APAC case and the implications of it. I think we're more in the position now where it is easy to foresee things getting a whole lot worse very quickly. Um, so successful it, subpoenas generate yeah, more not, successful. Yeah, subpoenas. I'm not. I'm not sure how you measure the chilling effect, but I can certainly see, because of this Privacy Act, opening up a new venue for people to go after reporters, and we're starting to see that already. So, if you know whether that has, will will make it more difficult for people to come forward. I, it's hard to predict. It's going to make it more expensive, you know, for for newspapers. Organization. Walter? Um, I, uh, I guess I, I have to admit that I, I haven't seen a change, but most of the sources I use are people I've known for a long time. And there are ways to deal with people who are 
nervous that relieves them of their nervousness. So that um, I think the best example is the fact of these four Pulitzer Prize stories, all of which uh, came forward after the subpoenas have been put out. I mean, people who feel strongly uh, do and are willing to take chances because they're doing something that they think is terribly important. And we ought to take what they say and make sure it's true. Uh, and just go ahead and do what we do. Uh, I think we're also going through a period in which you have an administration that, unlike others, uh, has broken whatever gentleman's agreement exists because of its own attitude toward the press. And these things swing left and right. Uh, there was a lot of problem that we had in the Nixon administration. But immediately after, uh, in the Plame case, my source came forward. In other words, I didn't, uh, I refused to uh, agree to talk about sources until my own source came forward and disclosed himself to the prosecutor. And at that point, uh, I, I was released verbally, not by a paper waiver, but through my lawyer found out that, that my source says it was perfectly all right for me to discuss what happened between us. But I had published exactly what my source said, unlike Judy Miller, so that, that uh, I was in a totally different situation. Uh, but I also had the pledge that I would not disclose the name of my source, and nobody knows who that source is even today. Um, so I think you, you maintain your sources and you maintain your position, and people either trust you or they don't trust you. More important, you have to trust the people that are giving you that information. Sir? Yes, uh, without attribution, how can the reader how could the public be assured of the accuracy or the validity of the information that they're reading in the newspaper? Uh, this, the flip answer is there are plenty of people who go on the record and tell you wrong information. In other words, the fact that the person is identified doesn't make the information more or less accurate. And in my view, uh, I use confidential sources for factual information which I then check to make sure it's true. Uh, but you as a reader, uh, in other words, unlike doctors or lawyers or other people, our names are right there. So you learn, hopefully, who you can trust and who you can't trust. Well, if we, know, if we knew who the, what the source was, well, uh, the there fact are some that sources that are unquestioned in their, in their validity, at least. Maybe their information is, isn't quite accurate, but at least we, we know that they're a valid source of information. I, I think there's they have credibility, in other words. I think there's a perception that reporters like using anonymous sources. Um, that is not, in my experience, the way it is. Reporter, and it may well be that there are too many of them in the press, and I wouldn't, wouldn't dispute that, but, or too many that are used too, too glibly. But, but certainly at my newspaper, and I know at the Post, where we try and guard against this, if somebody is, an, is, is demanding anonymity, it is because that person, because you can't get the information otherwise, or that person's job or well-being or whatever, is on the line if that person were to go forward. It is not 
about necessarily whistleblowers. I mean, when Walter was describing, when the Secretary of State has an off, you know, a background briefing, or the National Security Advisor does, because he or she decides they can't be quoted because they're explaining the president's policy, well, you can do one of two things. You can walk out and therefore deprive your readers or your viewer, well, it's readers, because they're usually banned to the press, banned to the cameras if it's, if it's background. Uh, deprive your readers of that context and of that information, and that is the way information does get disseminated. Or you can violate the rule, in which case you don't get invited back in. I mean, uh, you know, there are, and for whistleblowers, I think, as, as Walter pointed out, the, the chief, uh, the challenge for us is to take that information and somehow do whatever we can do to make sure it's accurate, to confirm it. And, I, you know, there's this sort of this image out there because of Watergate. Well, if we get it from another source, we can put it in the paper. I can tell you, two people can be just as wrong as one. You know, I mean, one good source is better than two bad ones. So, uh, you know, you just do what you can to get it out there. And, yeah, mistakes get made. And, but that's, that's what we, I think that's the way Thank you. we try and do it. Sir. So uh, Kathleen made the point that there is no bright line and alluded to some of this stuff going to the court and, and perhaps decisions going either way because there is no bright line. Uh, I'm concerned about uh, what are the ultimate ramifications of that if, if we have, if we build up a whole set of decisions which uh, don't establish precedent because they're done on a case-by-case -case basis, and yet uh, we have a whole system that's built up on uh, taking precedence from high courts. Where will we end up with that? Well, that's a, a terrific question. All case-by-case -case balancing has a tendency to be a little um, hard to rely on and fuzzy. I think I'd suggest, I think it can be structured. I think there can be structured balancing that divides cases into categories, and over time we'll get used to the categories. So I think that the government's need in the criminal uh, grand jury context is, can be presumed to be more important, uh, or a criminal defendant's right to subpoena <laughs> against the government may be more important than any civil litigant's right to subpoena in a civil case. So for example, you might have a line of cases that affects criminal cases and a different line of cases that are much more protective of the press in civil cases, and that those tendencies would begin to be established, and then that would keep civil litigants at bay. Uh, we haven't talked today about congressional subpoenas. You know, usually any time that Congress tries to issue a subpoena that the press does resist, the press has typically been successful in knocking those back. I mean, when every, when Congress during the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings tried to find out who had uh, leaked the story, the press rested on the confidentiality of their sources and also some background information the press published. Press rested on the confidentiality of the sources, and Congress backed down because Congress doesn't want to look like uh, it's a dictatorial, totalitarian institution beating up on the press in front of. Now that we have C-SPAN, it looks even worse. So I, I actually I think that for different categories of cases, congressional subpoenas, civil subpoenas, criminal subpoenas, we can develop lines of cases that have tendencies, and it won't just be case by case, every case on its own facts, and that's the best I could hope for. Obviously, I think there should be a very strong presumption in favor of First Amendment values, and I think the government should be put to a requirement that it would be in any grand jury subpoena case that it has um, a need for the information, the information is relevant. The question is, should it have to make a special showing that it's exhausted all avenues? 
And when the people who are uh, revealing the information are in the government, uh, sometimes the the, you know, the, gov the government the, the, the reporter may be a tool of democracy if he reveals who in the government is withholding the information about harm that they've caused. So, you know, I I, I, we, I don't think we can assume that all press subpoenas are inimical to First Amendment values, but most of them will be, and certainly the numbers matter. I mean, I think that what uh, White was saying is, look, the press isn't chilled here. I don't see enough evidence of chill. But what Bob described is that if things change, the gentleman's agreement breaks down, we have a huge increase in the number of subpoenas, they don't look all that necessary, and we use the contempt power even in civil cases to the point where the press is drying up, then we've got a systemic problem, and then I think courts could reasonably tip the balance in favor of the press in an individual case to reflect the systemic problem. So I, I don't think it's quite as um, case by case. We would, we would look to the background circumstances and we'd look to the different categories of cases. There, there is, in the midst of our case, midst of one of my cases, I can't remember which one, Judge Posner in Chicago came down heavily against the privilege, uh, any kind of privilege. But the reason he came down heavily is that the case is the kind of case Kathleen was talking about, the press misusing its role. Uh, several Chicago Tribune reporters taped a conversation with an IRA uh, fighter uh, and published a series of stories. A colleague who was captured by the British and was undergoing trial in England then wanted the tape because he thought it would be exculpatory for him, depending on whatever discussion took place. And the, the IRA fellow didn't want to go back to England and put himself up uh, in jeopardy. Uh, and so the British defense lawyer uh, in effect tried to get the tapes subpoenaed uh, and the Chicago Tribune reporters uh, claimed uh, privilege. And it turned out that the facts show that the reason they, and the, the subject, in other words the source, released them, said he wanted the tape turned over. Uh, and Posner came down heavily because, of course, it turned out that they wanted to keep the tape because they were writing a book. And if they had disclosed the tape or sent the tape back, it would have been disclosed and it would have undermined their book. And so he then hauled off and just whacked the press and whacked the whole idea of privilege because, in his mind, and I tend to agree, they were just misusing it. Sir? It, it seems to me like there has to be some sort of protection for the press because what you're fighting is government agencies which can classify anything, you know, what they had for lunch. And you have, you know, it seems like the government should have to defend every secret they keep rather than having to fight. So when you reveal a secret, they should have to prove, A, that that is dangerous and not automatically assume that, you know, it's a national security threat. It seems like everything's upside down with this whole way things are done. In the, I mean, it's a wonderful case. In the APAC case, they used this government employee who they subsequently indicted. They used him in a sting operation in which they gave him information to give to the two lobbyists. And then they taped the giving of that information, including the uh, Defense Department employee saying, this is uh, CIA information, this is really important, but they gave it orally. And it's going to be interesting if the case ever goes to trial to see whether information 
that was authorized to be given to an unauthorized person is classified. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific question. I just want to suggest that the, the harm there may be the overclassification of the information in the first place, where the information is not sufficiently tied to national security, its revelation doesn't cause a clear and present danger, and it doesn't matter whether it's revealed by being put on a government website or revealed by a reporter tra transmitting a, a leak from a, a so-called classified source. So I think there the First Amendment violation happens when the overclassification and excessive government secrecy happens. And we, we, we might want a system where the only way around that is to let reporters get so-called secret information and then have to promise anonymity because the source doesn't want to be revealed because the source is, wants to keep his government job. If there were some way to go after the problem at the root of trying to restrict government secrecy where it's not tied to national security, that would be superior to using reporters as the battering wedge against that. I, I would only add that you know we're we're all human, and so reporters screw up a lot. But but the administration, this administration, and others, you know, routinely declassify information. This White House certainly has, for their own purposes. Absolutely. You know, they do it when they want. They you know they put the national intelligence estimate out, even though it's deeply flawed. You know, these things are not routinely declassified because they wanted to bolster support for the war. And according to Scooter Libby's. Uh, last legal filing, you know, the White House, he, he released the information to reporters because he was told to. Uh, do they have the right to do that? Well, yeah, I suppose the president can. You know, he says it's declassified, it's declassified. But, you know, it's not, it's not just that we're doing, revealing secrets be, for the fun of it. It is generally for, for what, certainly every discussion I've been involved in these things, is this a valid news story? Is there, we take things out of stories I don't know all the time, but we certainly have taken things out of stories or not printed stories in some cases when the White House or the CIA has called and made a convincing case that there was a great risk, a specific clear risk in what was what was done. The, the famous story of this, of course, is uh, um, is the Bay of Pigs, right? When they, the, you know, they they sat on that and they and, and they didn't do it and and. They always said afterwards, as Kennedy supposedly said, yes, that he wished the New York Times had printed it in time to, to you know, keep it from happening. Sir? Yes, uh, for Mr. Drogan. Um, you mentioned the uh, Hatfield versus Ashcroft DOJ uh, privacy suit. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that the tactics of both sides in that um, case uh, are quite similar to the tactics that have been used by the administration side in um, the plame leak investigation and now in uh, Scooter Libby's defense. Um, does it seem to you that uh, these tactics have effectively chilled any investigative journalism on the anthrax case um, within the Washington press corps? And also, does it seem to you that by playing the leak game and then the and then the subpoena game, that the net effect of this has been first to send the Washington Press Corps on a wild goose chase for two or three years, and then to chill all discussion of the anthrax affair. Do you ever feel like the Washington Press Corps have been played for suckers on this? And do you ever wonder why that might have happened? Um, I, it's, I'm not sure how to answer that. You know, the Hatfield case, and I haven't read the, read the complaint, and I'm happily, you know, not 
directly involved in that one. Um, but yeah, I could tell you that if a story came up and Stephen Hadfield's name was in it right now, you know, I would be very, very careful. Uh, and I would talk to my editors very carefully about putting his name in the newspaper, uh, you know, as a hypothetical. I'm not sure. This, you know, because th there's, there's this case that's, in, that's out there right now. So is that a chilling effect? Well, you know, if the man were accused of something terrible, obviously it would go in the paper. Um, the reason I suspect you haven't seen much about the anthrax letters case is because, as far as I know, and I haven't looked at it, there's nothing new to report. The case has been stalled for three years. I mean, they still don't have a suspect. Uh, you know, they still don't know where it is. Um, but his case is, again, this is, a, this is the, a case of someone whose name was released, who was investigated. Um, you know, the press didn't make it up. I mean, they went. He was, a, he was the focus of a major investigation. They were unable to find credible evidence tying him to this case. You know, I, presumably he didn't do it. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, he's certainly not been charged with it. He was unable to file a libel suit because the information, as far as I know, was accurate. So what he's done is he's doing this Privacy Act case. And I think that's just made it much more difficult. If, if uh, you know, it's about, it's about accurate reporting. In a libel case, as, as you, you know, accuracy is the defense, right? If, if you, you can't libel someone if you're printing information that's true. Well, in these cases, this is tr this is accurate information. This is what the press, you know, is supposed to be doing. At least they told us in grad school, you know, <laughs> journalism school. So, so I think that's what's made it a little complicated for all of us. The Hatfield case is is a, is a real problem because the Attorney General of the United States stood up and described him as a person of interest, and he's caught up in the case. There is a, a libel case. Uh, against Nick Kristoff, the columnist, which was set aside by the district court, but it's been reinstated by the Court of Appeals. So he has both a libel case against Kristoff and a Privacy Act case against a whole group of journalists. Well, not against a whole group, a Privacy Act case against the Department of Justice and the Attorney General and the FBI, uh, in which just as in the Lee case, the press is caught up as the middleman. He's not suing the press, except in the case of Kristoff. He is suing the government, and we're in the middle. Sir? Uh, my question is in the same spirit as the last question. I'll come at it at a different angle. Maybe we can get a, uh, an answer that I would consider more satisfactory. I'm deeply concerned about what I would call the wag the dog syndrome and the overall manipulation of the public as well as the press by these leaks, by these cases. So for instance, the deeper dynamic behind the Plam case involves forged documents that were the basis of the claims of the uranium coming, uh, the deal between Iraq and Niger. We also have, in a similar situation, the uh, forgeries re uh, regarding or the false claims by Mr. Chalabai, whom I presume will be the subject, uh, Mr. Drogan, of your book, uh, Curveball. Um, to some extent, you'll be referring to that. So uh, I'm not so sure I have a question so much as a, 
as a, uh, the articulation of an extremely deep concern that the national security um, umbrella or shield or label that's used and evoked in all these matters it becomes a, a tool for manipulating us. And in the spirit of a previous question, you know, it, we, we have no sense of what the truth is out here. We are truly um, baffled and confused and victims to a large extent of the failure of the legal process, the political process, and, uh, and to some extent, obviously, the press, who may also be victims. So uh, I throw it out. I'll throw it out to you first because you're right. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't agree more in the sense I, except for Walter, who, who knows everybody in Washington, you know, the rest of us, I, I feel we are the, the ultimate blind men feeling the elephant covering these kinds of things. Unfortunately, what we've discovered over the last couple of years is the elephant is blind, deaf, and dumb. Uh, you know, well, whatever, but, it, you know, they, they weren't, a, you know, it wasn't a whole lot better. I mean, I, I, you know, in previous years, I mean, this government lies, politicians, presidents lie, you know, it's, this isn't the first president who has stretched the truth, however you want to phrase it. I mean, it's happened for a long time. So, so I take it you think we can do better? The press can do better? The press can, of course the press can do better. I mean, that's, that's a given. And I think, you know, it's, this is a dynamic that we're facing now. We're in, you know, th there's been a pendulum swing from 30-odd years ago when there were a lot of subpoenas. And then it, it, that, because of this gentleman's agreement, uh, I think there was this, the, the, tension, the tension eased and, and there was a way for the press to move. And now because of these, the confluence of these various cases and because this particular administration is so secrecy obsessed, it's, it's pushing things in a different direction again. And, and the danger here, you know, is not whether Walter and I go to jail or something. The danger is if these cases take off and you're wound up with not just Hatfield and not just this new lawsuit against, I'm told this morning against my paper, but that they're going to just spark copycat cases and that papers are going to get tied up, and, and it's going to just make reporting these kinds of stories, you know, much more difficult. The Wenho Lee story, whether you think he was a, a victim or innocent or not, you can't pretend that a story, you know, involving the alleged theft of nuclear weapons from the United States is not a newsworthy story that deserves public airing. And, and whether there were political implications or not, as, as some, you know, news accounts were claiming or some of the sources were claiming. You can't pretend that this is not something that, does, that shouldn't be on the front page, you know, or on the evening news broadcasts. And, you know, and that's, that's the point, the way we're trying to struggle through this, uh, is how you get that information out to a public, you know, to, to make this the democracy that, you know, our First Amendment says it's supposed to be, and yet have these kinds of constraints on us. What's your, one other part of this, I mean, you're raising the issue of pre-war intelligence, which I was writing about and the Times is writing about, and to some degree we're competing with each other. And a number of, of times when the, when the Times uh, time? published stories uh, about one of Chalabi's people, for example, who supposedly uh, was interviewed, who was, uh, was interviewed, and gave a long story about uh, how he would help him construct what he believed to be biological underground things. And I talked to the sources at the agency and they just said it wasn't true. Um, the, the question for us is, and it always was a dilemma I sort of faced, is should we publish a story 
knocking down a story that the New York Times did that we never told our readers? Or should we just let it go? Because the story then, in effect, died, although the administration resurrected it. Uh, I teach a Stanford class in Washington, and one of the things I lecture them on all the time is that, that you've got to read a lot. The citizens now sort of want one newspaper to tell them everything. And the whole reason there's a First Amendment is that, that uh, you know, we can print anything we want, and, and most newspapers began in the First Amendment period as party newspapers, uh, slandering all sorts of people, and it's a responsibility of a government in a democracy to read everything, make up their own mind. And so we're not here to sort of tell you the truth, because a lot of times we don't know what the truth is. But it's up to you to read a variety of things and then make up your own mind. But there is a, a view now in this country that every newspaper should have every point of view. And uh, that was the old FCC rule, uh, because there were a limited number of stations. Now there are multiple stations and limited number of newspapers. Uh, but it's, it's, it's one of the odd things about the First Amendment is that, that everybody has a responsibility to find out as much as they can, and you can't depend on us. We get used all the time, and we try not to, and, but uh, we're as fallible as everybody else, which is why I hate to have a special position for everybody. Okay, one last question, then I'm going to ask Kathleen a question that will wrap us up. Go ahead. I think I understand uh, how common law marriage works and that it's binding. Uh, but, but it's not clear to me how uh, anonymity of sources would work itself out in common law. Can, can you help with that? Okay. Well, the, the idea of the common law privilege is that you ask whether the privilege serves an important public and private interest, whether recognition of the privilege would outweigh any evidentiary benefit that would result from its denial. Right, so evidentiary benefit from the benefit that results from getting the information and whether the privilege is already recognized elsewhere. So what, what the, the proposal to have a federal common law privilege would build that balance into the test and would take information from the practice in the states that already exists. So that's what we mean by common law. It's not judges making it up out of whole cloth. It's looking to what goes on in the states and trying to develop, I hope categorically, principles for how to balance the benefit of the information against the cost uh, to society if we force the reporters to cough it up. So, uh, you know, and now the problem is that, you know, we have a marital privilege. We don't have a significant other privilege, in part because there is a bright line about who is a spouse. And with licensing provisions, you have licensing for attorneys and for doctors. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I heard the Chief Justice of California recently talking about, uh, he was very proud of nuclear jury instructions, and he was saying, well, most states have a doctor, uh, sorry, most states have a priest penitent privilege, but this being California, we have to have a privilege for your priest, minister, rabbi, or spiritual advisor, right? <laughs> so you can broaden the category of people in the relationship, but, you know, the question whether we're going to broaden the press privilege to people who are not professional journalists raises serious questions about whether they'll do what Walter just described, whether they will check other sources, whether 
whether they will corroborate, whether they, or whether they'll just transmit an email that came in over the transom. So I think the concern about uh, the common law, the, the, the reason to go common law rather than bright line is that to try to come up with a bright line rule of privilege for something called the press is to an, open up a new can of worms about who is the press. So this common law privilege is difficult as case by case, balancing is and as unsatisfying as it can be. That's the idea of what it would be. It would be trying to work out that balance in each case. And that's what Judge Tatel suggested in the in the DC decision. And that's what uh, uh, some people who are, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but it's better than what we have now, which is a, an assumption that there's no, the First Amendment adds nothing to the existing balance. This would say the First Amendment adds something, but it doesn't add an absolute. There needs to be clarification. You know, there just needs to, it, right now it's just all over the map. Yeah. So I guess my, my last question, and Kathleen, since you are the legal historian here, um, um, sort of relative to history, do you think, every, after everything we've talked here about to, here this afternoon, are we re out of balance with the First Amendment? Does it just seem that way? Is the fourth estate in crisis? Are we just seeing the, the, the sort of natural tensions between the need to protect government uh, secrets and the press ability to protect sources? play out, or um, are things really out of whack more than they ever have been before? That's my first question. My second question, you're a betting woman. Yes, Helen. You're a, bet <laughs> you're a, betting, <laughs> you're a betting woman. Will the uh, Supreme, how will the Supreme Court, um, will the Supreme Court take Drogon at all? Yeah, uh, okay, well, on the first question, uh, Thank you very much for, for pitching those to me. I'm, I'm not sure I have any more insight than anyone else on the panel, but I'll take a crack. I think we're at a, a perilous time for freedom of speech, not just because of the increase in subpoenas to reporters, but because of what the earlier question, some of the earlier questions reminded us of. We're at a time when we're at some peril to the First Amendment because government is more aggressively than before controlling the classification of information and controlling its selective deployment for political ends. In a time like that, you, you almost need a freer press as a defensive weapon for the people against the offensive use of information controlled by the government. So I think the twin, it's a pincer movement of government creating more obstacles to us knowing the truth about our democracy and the press being more suppressed in its effort to, to chip away and, and find that information out for us. So I think we are out of balance, we are out of whack, Reporters' privilege is not the only issue. The issue of excessive classification and selective leaking is a part of it. But reporters are the kind of uh, entering wedge, the canary in the mine, so to speak, that tells us that the system is out of whack and we should be looking at the privilege cases against that backdrop. I think balance is able to take into account those kind of contextual factors. The balance would be able to take into account the fact that the government made it hard for uh, the, uh, the public to get the information as part of the balance. I think for those reasons, you know, the, the, the court ought to take some, one of these cases. I don't know enough about Bob's case, except that Bob is a great guy <laughs> to, to, uh, to make a prediction on that. I, I do know that the court tends to look for narrow lawyers' reasons to take cases, like is there a conflict in the courts? But if ever there was a case where there's confusion in the lower courts and conflict in the lower courts, Correct. this looks like it. So uh, we'll find out next Monday, a week from today, whether the court is going to take this one up. Okay, stay tuned. Thank you, everyone. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. 
please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.